Lord, you are everywhere that we are. There is nothing that happens that doesn't happen by your order. Lord, you are all that is. We want to understand you better. We want to know you more. We want to understand your character. We want to understand what you want us to do. So, Lord, please teach us from your word so that we can follow you more and give more of our lives to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, for the last couple of months, Christina and I have been preoccupied with names because we're going to have a baby and we had to figure out a name. And because we didn't know what kind of baby we were going to have, boy baby or girl baby, we had to come up with names for each. And we were able to settle on a girl's name, but we never were able to figure out a boy's name. So we're happy we had a girl. It'd probably still be Baby Dudley. I mean, one of us would come up with a name, we'd throw it out there, and we'd say, how about this? And the other person would say, oh, no, 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 I knew a guy in fourth grade by that name, and he was mean, so no. (laughs) Or that name has too many syllables, it doesn't work with Dudley, so no. And then, of course, there were a whole host of names that we didn't even consider. My favorite name in the Bible, for instance, is Tigleth Pelizar. (laughs) That didn't make the list. And Adolf and Napoleon were right out because they had bad connotations. We wanted to get the name exactly right. Now, every parent in here knows this this drill. You want to get the name right because we have this idea that a name is more than just a label. That a name actually says something about the character of the person, about who that person is. And that the name can even affect the course of that person's life. Some of you may remember a song from long ago by Johnny Cash called A Boy Named Sue about a dad who names his son Sue and all the problems that ensued from that. (laughs) Names are more than just labels. And this is especially true of the Hebrew culture in which the Bible takes place. In the Bible, a name is never just a label. It, is, it says something about the person's character, the essence of who they are. It sums up who they are. And that's why God is always changing people's names in the Bible. Jacob, which means the manipulator, ends up becoming Israel, which means he who strives with God. Or Simon becomes Peter, which means the rock. God changes their names because the names denote the essence of who that person is. Well, it's in that context that I think it's interesting that in the Bible, God is given a lot of different names. He's known as Advocate, Shepherd, the Holy One, Everlasting Father. It's actually a very long list of names for God in the Bible. So for the next three weeks, I want to look at three of those names as a way of helping us understand who God is, what his character is, what his essence is all about. And I want to begin by looking at the first name that God gives for himself in the Bible. I am. I am. The name shows up in Exodus, which we we just read, where God is telling Moses, go and deliver the Jews from slavery in Egypt. But you know the story. Moses doesn't want to go. So he comes up with all kinds of excuses. and, And one of his weaker excuses is, well, but I don't know your name. I don't know why that matters, but, you know, I don't know your name, God, so I can't do it, you see. So God answers his excuse-making. He says, okay, you want my name? Here's my name. My name is I Am. Tell them I Am has sent you. 
Now, it's, it's kind of an odd name. Again, we didn't consider this one for our baby. I am Dudley. I suppose it gets to the point, but it didn't seem quite right. But I think it reveals a couple of really important things about who God is. Four, to be precise. I know normally I have three, but you get a bonus point today. The first is very simple. I am means that he is. He exists. By giving himself the name, this name, God is saying, I exist. Now I know that sounds elementary. God exists. But sometimes I think we need to be reminded of that. Because you see, most of us, myself included, live our lives as functional atheists. We say we believe in God, but we don't act as if he really exists, as if he really is. We worry. We don't take risks to follow him because we're just sure that he's not going to come through for us. We chase after money and pleasure and power because those are the things we can see. And we act as if God isn't really there. About a year ago, I met a man who was a chaplain during World War II, and he said that one of the things he noticed was that soldiers who called themselves Christians were just as afraid to die as soldiers who didn't call themselves Christians, that their faith seemed to have no impact on their life. It was, it was an intellectual idea for them, but it wasn't a reality. And you know what? We Western Christians are very good at doing that at turning God into an intellectual idea, a nice concept to be thought about and studied, but he's not very real to us, not real like the floor or the chair or the wall. And as a consequence, he doesn't much impact the way we live. If we really, really, really believed that God was there, that would change everything. Money? Who cares about getting money? God is what lasts. Why waste your time on money? Impressing other people? Who cares? God is at the top of the org chart. Let's impress Him. If we really, really believed, our lives would be different. And so God is saying to Moses, Moses, I'm not a concept. I'm, I'm not an idea. I'm not a theory. I'm not a nice excuse for you to get together on a Sunday and hear music you like and see some people you enjoy. I am. I exist. I'm here. I'm real. Now, at the time, this is a message Moses desperately needs to hear. Because for 400 years, Moses' people, the Jews, have been slaves in Egypt. So a natural question for Moses to ask was, if God is, then why are we enslaved? If God is real, then why this catastrophe? So God is actually answering a question Moses probably has. Maybe you ask that question sometimes, too. If God is so real, then why? If God is so real, then, then why is my health failing or my marriage in trouble or my kids acting up? If God's so real, then why do people in the church fight with each other and do mean things? If God is so real, then where is he? Why don't we see him more? And what God is saying to Moses is, hang on, Moses, I know you don't think I'm real. I know you think I'm a theory, but hang on. I'm going to show you. I'm going to get you out of slavery. I'm going to part the Red Sea. It's going to be real Cecil B. DeMille. It's going to be awesome. Hang on. I exist. I am. I'm real. Does God seem unreal to you for one reason or another? Hang on. He will show you that he is real. Which brings me to a second point about this name. And that is that God's name is a verb, not a noun. Most names are nouns. 
But God's name is a verb. There are a lot of ways of translating this Hebrew word, Yahweh, that is, that is given here. It, it can mean I am. You could translate it, I will be who I will be. I am the one that is. I am the ising one. I am the one that is always I aming. There are a lot of different ways. Honest. There are, it's a very hard word to translate. There are a lot of different ways you could translate it, but however you do, it's always going to be a verb. God's name is a verb, not a noun. Don't you think that's interesting? Here's what I think that means. That God is revealed in action. God is revealed in action. That's what verbs do, right? They're action words. God becomes real only if we let him act in our lives and only if we act as if he were real. God becomes real in action. Moses never would have known that God was real unless he acted. Unless he acted by going to Pharaoh and saying, set my people free. Unless he let God act in his life by bringing him to the Red Sea and watching God divide the water in two. Moses saw that God was real because God acted in his life. He let God act in his life. And he acted as if the promises of God were true. God is a verb. Now, I think that's kind of uncomfortable to us sometimes. I think a lot of times we would prefer that God was a noun. Nouns are safe. Nouns are tame. They don't do anything. They just refer to things. But God is a verb. And he becomes real to us only if we let him be a verb. Only if we let him do things in our lives. And only if we do things based on the premise that he exists. It's like that scene in Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade. Some of you have seen that movie. There's this canyon and he has to get across. And he's been told there's this invisible bridge there, but he can't see it until he puts his foot down on it. And then he sees it. That's how God is. We don't see him, we don't know he's there, unless we act as if he is. Unless we do things that he tells us to do to see him come through for us. Unless, for instance, we give 10% of our money to his purposes and then watch him provide for us. Uh-huh, I snuck that one in, I'm sneaky. <laughs> we'll never know he's there. Unless we lay down our pride and reconcile with people that we're mad at, just like he tells us to do, so that we can see the healing that only he can bring. Unless we do things like that, we'll never know he's there. Unless we act as if he's real, we won't see him. But when we let him be a verb, when we let him act in our lives, and when we act as if he exists, we know he's real. And we know that he is the most powerful being in the entire universe. Which brings me to a third point I want to make about this name. And that is when the God says that his name is I Am, I think part of what he's trying to tell Moses is that he is the center of the universe. I am, Moses. I, I am what is. I, it's not you are. You know, God doesn't say you are, Moses. He says I am. And I think part of the reason he's doing that is he's trying to get Moses' focus off of himself and back onto God where it belongs. Because you see, in this passage, Moses is awfully focused on himself. He's saying, I can't go do this thing you want me to do because, well, it might all turn out badly, Lord. And what if they don't believe me? And what if they don't like me? And what if I fail? And in all of those questions, where is Moses' focus? It's on himself. And what God says is, Moses, I am. I am. Look at me. This isn't about you, Moses, so get over yourself. Look at me. And you can see this, actually, in the Hebrew. There's a lot of puns on this word, I am. Moses keeps saying, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Who am I 
to bring the people out of slavery. Who am I to go speak? And God takes that am I statement and turns it around and says, I am. Moses says, am I able to do this? And God says, no, but I am. You see, the question is not who am I? The question is, who is this I am? And what does he want? And where is he leading? And what is he doing? And how can we follow him? We are not the center of the universe. God is. Now, that comes as quite a shock to me. I don't know about you, because I often think that I am the center of the universe. Or at least I act that way. Give you an example. Often, after preaching, I'll go home on a Sunday afternoon and I'll agonize over something I've said or didn't say. I'll go, oh, I could have said that better. Or, ooh, I shouldn't have said that at all. And my wife always says the same thing to me. I may have shared this with you before. She always says, Scott, remember, nobody thinks about you as much as you do. (laughs) They're eating lunch. And they have forgotten every word you've said. (laughs) Don't worry about it. They may even have blotted it out word by word as you went along. You're not the center of the universe. Get over yourself, Scott. I find that comforting. (laughs) I think there's marvelous freedom in that. C.S. Lewis says that humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is not thinking of yourself at all. Doesn't that sound freeing? Not to think of yourself at all. Not to have to worry about how everything affects you. Not to have to twist and manipulate circumstances to get them to come out your way so that you can be happy. I think that's wonderfully freeing. Wonderfully freeing. To choose my actions based only on who God is and what he asks of me without reference to myself at all. Without having to always think, how does this affect Scott Dudley? Will this make Scott Dudley happy or sad? Will Scott Dudley like this or won't he? How will this reflect on Scott Dudley? Will it reflect well or poorly on Scott Dudley? Oh, who cares about Scott Dudley? Move on, move on. God is the center of the universe, not me. He's what matters. And what glorious freedom it would bring not to think of ourselves at all. You're not the center of the universe. You can let that one go. And when you do, you will know God a whole lot better. Which brings me to the last point I want to make about this name. It's personal. It's personal. God can be known. Now, you know, the Jews would not pronounce this name because they thought it was too holy to pronounce. So they would substitute the word Adonai instead, which means Lord. But I think they got it wrong because I think you can say this name because throughout the Bible, God is always saying, call on the name of the Lord. And I think the reason that God gives his name to Moses is because in this culture, to know someone's name is to have access to their soul, their character, to know who they are. And I think God wants to be known, so he gives Moses his name. God is being personal here, making himself known. A gesture he continues throughout all of Scripture and finally fulfills in Jesus Christ, the great I am in human form, so that we could know him. And all throughout the Gospels, Jesus uses this word, I am, to describe himself, knowing full well that by using it, he's claiming to be God. I am the door, Jesus says. In other words, I am the way you're going to get to God. I am the bread of life. In other words, I am the one that will nourish you. I am the vine. You are the branches. In other words, we can be linked closely to Jesus Christ. 
and know Him. Jesus is saying, I am God, but I am also knowable. I am personal. God's name is personal. He can be known. Back in December, I I told you about a friend of mine named Gary Haugen, who was a young, successful lawyer in Washington, D.C. And he got restless with his faith, and he started asking the question, what if I acted as though God were real? I mean, really real? And so he started noticing throughout Scripture that God is always saying, care for the orphan, care for the widow, care for the people who can't defend themselves. And so he went and started this thing called International Justice Mission. I've told you about it before. And what they do is they go into the developing world and get people out of forced prostitution or bonded child slavery or folks who've been falsely imprisoned. They help them. And when he started it all, there was just him, and he just there was only one thing he wanted to do. He wanted to see if God would show up if he stepped out in faith. And he just wanted to prove to himself and to the people who were giving him money to do this thing that it was possible that God would show up. Well, the third case he got was of a little seven-year-old girl in India who was sold into bonded slavery by her parents because they needed $35 to pay a doctor because the father was dying. And now this little girl had to work seven days a week, 14 hours a day, rolling cigarettes. And if she fell below her quota, she was beaten. And there was no way that they could get her out because in order to do that, they had to come up with $35 all at once, more money than they would ever see in a lifetime. So, I mean, you hear a story like that and it raises the question Moses had, right? God, if you are, then where are you in this? So my friend Gary goes to India to try to get her out, having no idea how he's going to do it. But he gets a court date for this girl, and he figures he'll do his best, even though he's an American lawyer who knows nothing about Indian law. And the day before this hearing, he decides he better go pray. So he he and a few friends go driving through the countryside to find a church, and they just pick a church at random. And they walk into the church, and the first person they meet in this church happens to be a judge. But not just any judge happens to be the judge who is going to hear the case about the little girl the following day. And not only happens to be that particular judge who's going to hear the case for this little girl the next day, but happens to be a Christian judge. Now bear in mind, there are one billion people in India, and only one percent of them are Christian, and most of them come from the lower classes. They are not judges. So what are the odds that my friend Gary would meet this particular Christian judge on this particular day in India? I believe that would be one in a billion But he meets him anyway, and not only does the judge free this little girl the next day, but soon after that, this judge gets promoted to oversee the entire state of Tamil Nadu in India. And now today, there is almost no bonded child slavery left in that state in India. Is that a miracle? It is at bare minimum an astonishing coincidence. (laughs) Now remember... When my friend Gary started this whole thing, he just wanted to prove that it was possible, just to show his backers that they were not wasting their money, that God would show up. And because God really is, and because my friend acted as if God were a verb, and let God act in his life, and acted as if God were real, and because my friend put God and God's agenda at the center of his universe, not his own comfort, my friend saw that God was real, and God became very personal to him in a big way. When we act as if God is real, when we do the things he tells us to do, we see him and we know him. It has always struck me as significant that God chooses the to be verb 
to describe himself. The verb of ultimate ontology, the verb of ultimate being, as if to say, I am being at its most intense. I am existence at its very best. And when you have me, you have all that is because I am all that there is. You know, from here on out, Moses' life gets pretty bleak, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago. I mean, he has to go confront the most powerful person in the world, Pharaoh. He has to lead a stubborn people through a hot desert for 40 years and listen to them whine and complain. He doesn't even get to go into the promised land. I mean, he, all he gets, he gets, he gets a little glimpse of it from the top of Mount Pisgah, and then he dies. I mean, all of that for what James Joyce called just a Pisgah view of Palestine. And yet, and yet he got to see God face to face, watch him split an ocean in two, defeat Pharaoh's army, provide water from a rock, and on and on. Moses gave up a lot, but what he got in return was all that is existence and being at its most intense. I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you believe God exists, and maybe you don't. Maybe you believe that he's real, but he's just an idea, he's just a theory, he's just a concept, he's not really real to you. Maybe you believe, but he's not the center of your universe, you are. Wherever you are, I want to invite you with me to this week, make this God the center of your universe. Make him a verb, not a noun. Act as if he was real. Take the risks he asks you to take. Love the people he asks you to love. Give the things he asks you to give and see if he doesn't come through. So that you can know that this great I am, he really is. And he wants to be everything to you. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you are, that you're real, and that you long to reveal yourself to us so that we can know you. Lord, I ask that this week we would make you the center of our universe, not anything else, and that we would act as if you were real so that we can know you better. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.